All right, let's uh, begin. And uh, we're looking at 1 Corinthians, life in the local church. And um, I forgot what I entitled this lesson this week. What did I call it? A church divided against itself. A church divided against itself. Yeah, that's about right, isn't it? We have a quiz first. Fortunately, that's the problem when you when you take a class from a seminary professor. There's always a quiz. Just remember that there's always a quiz. So Corinth became a Roman colony in 46 BC. True. True. That true or false? True. 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 Right? Is that true? Yeah. Is that true? That's true. Okay. So what can you tell me about that? Remember, Corinth was destroyed in 146. It was destroyed by the Romans as they were coming through and conquering Greece. Corinth mounted opposition to the Romans. And so they destroyed Corinth. And then then Julius Caesar rebuilt uh, Corinth as a Roman colony, as a Roman city in 46 B.C., the Olympic Games were held every four years in Corinth. No. Where were the Olympic Games held at? No. <clears throat> the Games were named after the place where they were held. They were held in Olympia. <laughs> Olympia is west of Corinth. It's almost on the very Aegean. It's on the coast there, Olympia. Is, is a town in Greece. And so they were held in Olympia every four years. Uh, there were some games close to Corinth called the Isthmian Games, which were held every two years. Uh, the church at Corinth was founded by Paul in his second missionary journey. Yes. That's true. That was Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. So Acts chapters 13 and 14 are the first missionary journey. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council. And then at the end of chapter 15, going through 16, 17, 18, is the second missionary journey. Acts 18, Paul establishes the church at Corinth. The chief deity in Corinth was Zeus. False. False. I mean, Zeus was obviously worshipped there, but the chief deity was... was... Aphrodite. Aphrodite. The Romans called Aphrodite Venus. Remember, the Greeks and the Romans had the same gods. The Greeks had the gods on Mount Olympus. Rome comes along later. They adopt Greek culture. They adopt Greek learning. If you were uh, a Roman lad and you were like Julius Caesar and you were you lived, you were educated in Rome in the first century BC, you studied Greek and Greek literature. Romans didn't really starting started started study they didn't really start studying Roman literature until the first century, until the Christian era. They basically learned Greek and Greek literature. And so they adopted the Greek gods. They just had different names. Zeus they called Jupiter. And Aphrodite they called Venus and so forth. They had very different names, but the same gods. And so Aphrodite had this temple on Acrocorinth, that mountain which had, in olden times, was the center of sacred prostitution and still continued up until Paul's time. 
Uh, number five, Paul founded the church at Corinth around A.D. 50. That's true. Remember we said that one of the clearest historical dates we have to date the Apostle Paul's life is the date July A.D. 51. In July A.D. 51, the proconsul Gallio became the proconsul of the province of Achaia, where Corinth was the capital. And he comes to Corinth in AD 51. Paul's already there. So we assume Paul came to Corinth probably the fall of AD 50, left the spring about AD 52. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 9 makes reference to a letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth prior to 1 Corinthians. Yes, that's true. So we know that Paul had other correspondence with the Corinthians besides 1 Corinthians. He mentions a letter we'll see in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 that, that he had written. And then they wrote a letter to him, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning what you wrote about. I'm going to respond to what you wrote about. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> How did they know where to send the letter if he was... Traveling all the time. <laughs> it is <coughs> it is a problem, isn't it? When Paul left, he um, he left uh, uh, Corinth. Uh, he said that he was. He probably told them he, he went to, when he left Corinth. He went to to Ephesus. Uh, he probably told them he was going to Ephesus. Now he left Ephesus and went back to Jerusalem, Antioch. I assume in Ephesus he told them he was going. But there was probably frequent travel across the Aegean there between the Corinth. That's probably what we'll see it reference to that when we get to the house of Chloe here. So people were going back and forth. Apollos was going back and forth. Fortunatus, Stephanus, the cock, well, they were going back. So people were traveling, trade and other things. So yes, it's it is it's not always easy to know where Paul is at, but he has a lot of friends, a lot of traveling, so apparently it kept up that way. And he sent letters uh, where he could. Now, individuals in that day and age couldn't, there was no postal service for individuals. The only postal service in the Roman world was technically for official documents, for Roman officials, government officials. You could sometimes... Get, get somebody, bribe somebody to take one with you, or some people would have to just get a friend who was going that way to take a letter, something like that. Uh, that's what Paul generally did. He had, he had, we know, he had people take letters. He had Phoebe probably take a letter to the Romans and so forth. Well, we are, um, we are looking at, uh, well, that's really small, isn't it? I'll probably make that bigger next time. We're looking at the Thanksgiving. We looked at the introduction. We're looking at the introduction. Uh, we looked at the salutation last time, verses 1 through 3. And now we're looking at the Thanksgiving. Paul often in his letters, remember we said Paul's letters are a lot like letters that other people wrote in the ancient world. And in those letters, people would often thank the gods, thank the gods, the pagan gods, for the person they're writing to. And Paul, of course, adapts that for Christian usage. And he often thanks God, the true Christian God, for the people that he is writing to. Um, I say here we may be surprised as we read these verses that Paul is able to thank God for the Corinthians' spiritual giftedness 
even though they are abusing their gifts and thus causing him grief. But the apostle recognized that the problem lies not in their gifts, but in their attitude toward these gifts. Their spiritual gifts come from God, and thus God can be and should be thanked for giving them. Now, they're abusing their gifts, as we'll see, because they're not using them for the edification of the church. They have these gifts given by God, and we know they are what we call miraculous gifts. Many of these gifts are. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, we'll read about. But they're not using them to edify the church. They're using them to puff themselves up for their own uh, uh, edification, in a sense, as Paul will say. That is, uh, to make themselves look good. But, because they are believers, they're professed believers, and Paul believes that most of them are believers, now Paul will address them as believers, it's the same problem any pastor has in a congregation. You preach in a congregation, and uh, I mean, I went out and preached in churches many times in the last 30 years around the metro area, when I go out, I just assume most people are Christians. I address them. But I realize there may be some who are not there, not Christians. But you assume, Paul assumes most of these people are Christians, and he addresses them that way. And because they have these spiritual gifts, then God deserves to be thanked. He can thank God for these gifts, even though the gifts are not being used for the right purpose. These gifts are uh, not oriented towards God. They're not being used to praise and thank God and these kinds of things. So Paul will have some objections here. Verse 4, he says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. So Paul commonly gives thanks for those who have been saved under his ministry as well as for other Christians. There's always some evidence of the grace of God in every saved person. So Paul can genuinely thank God for the Corinthian believers the reason for Paul's thanksgiving in their case is God's grace given you in Christ Jesus. So, the Corinthians boasted in their spiritual gifts. Paul is, is directing their attention to the grace of God that's given to them. So they're boasting in themselves what they possess. They stress their gifts. But Paul is stressing God's gracious activity. I thank God for you because of his grace given you. So he's, he's thanking God for the grace given them in Christ Jesus. So there's no grounds for boasting. There shouldn't be any grounds for boasting, and even in our lives, you know, because what we have is from God. Nothing is deserved and nothing is earned. Verse 5. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and all knowledge. I say here, Paul now specifies or lists the specific graces for which he gives thanks. The Corinthians have been enriched, Paul says, in every way or in every respect. But Paul focuses on their speech and knowledge. He selects the two areas almost certainly because they were noticeably evident and highly prized in the church. So again, Paul is redirecting their focus from their gifts back to God. You've been enriched by God in every way. Now, as I say here, the term speech 
lagos here probably refers to the various gifts of utterance listed in chapter 12, which might be knowledge, wisdom, tongues, prophecy. Uh, Knowledge in chapter 12 through 14 refers to the gifts of special knowledge, probably related to prophetic revelation. So why does Paul pick out these two particular terms here when he says speech and knowledge? Probably because he's picking up the terms that they were particularly attracted to. He's using up, he's picking up the two categories that they were in, infatuated with. He's picking up the two things that they pointed to themselves as being mature Christians. We've arrived, they said, because we have these gifts of speech and knowledge. But Paul is going to argue that they're acting rather carnally. They're acting in human ways. They're just acting like merely human beings. These are legitimate gifts of the Spirit, but they're not used in a way that will edify the church, as you'll refer to in 1 Corinthians 14. But because they're genuine gifts, I can thank God for these gifts. Verse 6. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So the Corinthians being becoming rich in spiritual gifts is the confirmation of the genuineness of Paul's testimony of Christ about them. So this is an important point. It may not seem like it, but he says, these gifts, which you obviously believe are genuine, and I believe are genuine, are confirmation that our testimony about Christ, that is, our message about Christ, the gospel message we preached, that that message is a genuine message. That is, it confirms that the message I spoke to you is true. Those gifts show that the gospel works. I brought a message about Christ, and what happened? You got saved, and God gifted you with spiritual gifts. That's going to become important throughout First and Second Corinthians, because the Corinthians are going to, at times, question Paul's authority. question Paul's apostleship, you know. And Paul will say at points, you know, you know, you might have a thousand teachers. You might have a lot of people you're listening to. But I'm the guy who established the church. And if you don't like my kind of Christianity, you don't have any Christianity, you know. You, you, I'm the guy who brought you the gospel. You didn't listen to it on the radio. You didn't get it through email or something. You got it from me. And you accepted the gospel I presented about Christ, you received these spiritual gifts, you really can't question that. You shouldn't have any doubts about that. So that's going to become an important point for the Apostle Paul. Therefore, he says, verse 7, you do not lack, some translate this, you do not come short of any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. The Corinthians potentially have at their disposal all the gifts of God. They don't lack They don't come short in anything. Paul adds that such gifts are to be used in the context of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's some question about why Paul, right at this point, mentions the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It could be that Paul just does this because he is a man who rightly looks at his life in the context of Christ could come back at any moment. 
you know, we wish we could have that perspective all the time, that we could live our lives thinking, you know, I'm going to do this, but i got to remember Christ will come at any moment. Uh, we don't tend to do that. So it could be that Paul is thinking, he's he put that in here in the sense that uh, I just want you to remember that we are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. But more likely, I think, <coughs> Paul is taking the, his first jab at the Corinthians' own, apparently, what we might call and what some have called over-realized eschatology. <clears throat> mm. Well, I had to throw that in there, you know. <laughs> what is over-realized eschatology? This is a term that is used quite a bit in discussions of the book of 1 Corinthians, over-realized eschatology. Well, what is eschatology? <clears throat> well, if you wait till next summer, next May, Ken will finally get a master plan for life for eschatology, but you apparently had eschatology and master plan for life. Eschatology is the Greek word for last things, or the study of last things, right? Eschatology is study about is a study of prophetic events, the future events, the second coming of Christ. That's eschatology. Well, sometimes the Bible speaks about the future as though it's already here. That we're already enjoying certain benefits. You know, that, that we're, we're, we're enjoying benefits right now uh, in a kind of a partial sense. Like the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment, Paul says at one time in Arabic. It's a down payment of what is to come. Now, the Gospel of John is kind of famous for using what's called realized eschatology. For instance, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There's a sense in which the unsaved people in this world that we meet, and we, talk, we might use this verse, we might say, Hey, listen, guess what? If you don't believe in Christ, you're condemned already. But the truth is, they actually haven't been to the, to the throne of God and been condemned. They haven't officially been condemned, have they? But it's just as good as, it's as certain as it will happen. You know, they haven't believed in Christ, so the verdict is in, isn't it? If you don't trust Christ, you will ultimately be condemned at the day of judgment. At the great white throne, you will be cast in the lake of fire. So it's certain. So it's, it's like it's realized. It's like it's already happened. The writers speak about a judgment that's already happened, even though technically it's not technically happened yet, you know? Or, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Well, we do have spiritual life, but we don't have it in its fullness yet, you know? We have, a, there's a lot more to come. There's an eternal life with God forever that's yet to come. But John is the one who speaks about, we have it, but we don't have it to its fullness. Even Paul will say, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Well, actually, no one in this room has been glorified yet. But Paul says, those he justified, he also glorified, past tense. So he's speaking proleptically. He's speaking as though it had already happened. It's, it's, all, it's almost like it's already been realized. It's so certain. Everyone God justifies will be, in fact, glorified. We can be absolutely certain of that. So that's sort of like realized eschatology. 
But it's possible, it's possible to go too far in this idea of realized eschatology. And the Corinthians do that. First Corinthians 4 8, Paul will say, now he says this mockingly. He says this in satire. He says, Already you have all you want. Oh, you have all you want. You have become rich. You've begun to reign. See, this is mocking satire. These Corinthians think they have arrived spiritually and they have everything. Now, overrealized eschatology is a perfect word to describe what's happening in our Christian world with the prosperity gospel. It's overrealized eschatology. It's, it's a common factor in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, overrealized eschatology. One of the verses they commonly point to, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So therefore, by Jesus' wounds we are healed, all you've got to do is just claim it, friend, and you will get it. Well, see, there's truth here. Every benefit we have comes to us through Jesus Christ. One day, I will have a glorified body because of Jesus Christ, because by his wounds, I'm going to be healed. Just cold, I won't have to worry about it any longer. I'll be healed. But I can't get it right now. I can't name it and claim it and get that glorified body right now, you know. You just can't do it. I see a lot of you wearing eyeglasses, and you can name it and claim it all day long, but you're still going to be wearing those glasses unless you get some sort of laser vision or some laser something surgery or something, you know. You just can't claim it right now. You'll get it. It's going to be realized. It's in the atonement. Sometimes uh, the question will come up, is healing in the atonement? And sometimes evangelicals will say, no, no, healing's not in the atonement. We always trick our seminary students back when we used to, we used to, when we, <laughs> Jim, but it's before your time, right? Thank goodness. We used to, we used to, at the, at the end of their careers, before they graduated, we'd have an, a, an exam, a doctrinal exam before the faculty. <clears throat> we always had these tricky questions, you know. So one of them was, is healing in the atonement? So you don't, you don't know what to say. Because if you say healing is in the atonement, See, that's what the Pentecostals say. That's what the Charismatics say. They say healing is in the atonement. Therefore, I should be able to get it. You know? I should be able to have... If I have faith, I could be healed. So they don't want to say that. But then if they say it's not in the atonement, they're in trouble anyway. So (laughs) healing is in the atonement. But you can't necessarily get it now. The resurrection's in the atonement. But you can't get it now. Not everything that's in the atonement. Not all the blessings that God gives us in salvation are available right this instant, you see. So that's the problem with this over-realized eschatology and with many of our Pentecostal charismatic friends is that they believe they can have this thing right now, but it's not necessarily so that God has promised it. And that's what happens to our Corinthians friends here. They they, want to claim all these things right now. So Paul's thanksgiving here reminds them that, okay, you've got some gifts, but you ain't got it all. You haven't arrived at this point. Verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end 
so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I say here we may be surprised that Paul should express such confidence in the Corinthian church since their current behavior leaves much to be desired. And as we will see on numerous occasions, Paul will exhort them with the strongest kinds of warning. So even though Paul warns them that they haven't arrived yet, he still holds out before them great confidence that by God's own action, they will arrive. They will make it to the end. Because Paul believes that genuine Christians will persevere to the end. That the God who has begun a good work in you, he will perform it. He'll complete it. So if one is a genuine Christian, God will bring us through. And so he holds out that hope for the Corinthians, even though he sees problems and difficulties and that kind of thing. And that's an encouragement to us. Because we're going to see people in our church, we may see it in our own lives, but we may see people in our church who come into our church, young Christians maybe, and they got a lot of problems. they got a lot of difficulties. And, you know, we have to remember that God takes time to make a person holy, to sanctify a person. they got a lot of issues. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to be more and more of a problem because we live in such a counter-Christian cultural world. Um, you know, when I grew up and, and the, the world around me was really had Christian morals and Christian beliefs. And now people who come, who get saved and come into our church, they come from a world that has the opposite beliefs of us. So everything is, is going to be a shock to them. It's going to be difficult. We have to have patience with them. Verse nine, God is faithful who has called you into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All that Paul has said in his thanksgiving about God's grace towards the Corinthians, both in past and the future, is now summed up in the glorious exclamation in which Paul connects the truth of God's faithfulness to his calling of believers. How can God be sure that the Corinthians of all people will be found guiltless on that day? Because he says, God is faithful. I'm trusting God, not you. It's God that I'm depending upon here. I'm trusting that if God has saved you, He will bring you through to this final redemption, this final salvation. All right. We're looking now at Roman numeral two. uh, If we can see that, but it's on your uh, uh, notes there. A church divided internally and against Paul. 110 through 421. I say here, The problem that Paul addresses at the beginning of this letter is one that many of us can easily identify with, divisions in the church. Quarrels within a church are unfortunately not an uncommon phenomenon. Although the Corinthians were quarreling with one another over their leaders, nothing in chapters 1 through 4 indicates they were deeply divided on issues so that they were actually breaking up into separate groups. So I'll mention this again, but when we talk about divisions, we don't mean that they were actually meeting in different places. They had actually had a church split here. These are divisions about their thinking, quarrels about various issues. So they're divided among the congregation. The problem in 110 through 421 seems to be centered around four main issues. One, first, there is quarreling and divisiveness among them centered around loyalty to the various teachers. 
Now, there's no evidence that the teachers themselves were part of this problem. They're saying, you know, I am a Paul, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. So they're they're quarreling, they've got these differences of opinion centered around these various Christian leaders, but there's no evidence that the leaders were actually supporting this or a part of this in any sense. Um, I mean, there's various statements that indicate this cannot be true. For instance, 1 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul, only servants through whom you came to believe? He uses himself and Apollos as good examples. We're just servants. If, if Apollos is some sort of corrupting influence, he's not going to be using him. Also in 1 Corinthians 16, 12, Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. So what I'm saying is, Paul has good things to say about Apollos. Now, if you remember Apollos, if you remember the book of Acts, Paul, after he visits Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and establishes the church, he goes over to Ephesus and leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. Remember, he met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. And they were tent makers, leather workers, and he roomed with them and so forth, worked with them. And then they left Corinth and went with Paul over to Ephesus. But Paul doesn't stay long. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. And he goes back to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch. Then he starts his third missionary journey. While he is doing that, Apollos comes to uh, comes to Ephesus, you remember. And Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla explained to him the way of God more perfectly. You remember he wasn't fully cognizant of all the things about Jesus and so forth. And so he goes, he leaves Ephesus and goes to Corinth. So he's already been to Corinth once and now, once, and now Paul says, I urged him to go to you again. So, so the point is when Paul, when we say uh, these Corinthians are following these leaders and dividing among these leaders, we know at least in the case of Paul and Apollos, they weren't part of the problem. He also mentions Cephas, you know, and Jesus. <laughs> Obviously, Christ is not part of the problem. So we, we believe that this quarreling centered around these teachers, but they were not part of the problem. Second, the quarreling is in some way related to the idea of wisdom. Wisdom in the Greek philosophical tradition. The Greek words wisdom, Sophia, and wise are prominent in the discussion throughout chapters 1 through 3. Now, these words are unusual words for the Apostle Paul. If you look at the how these words are used in Paul's epistles, you see that big blip there? That's uh, 1 Corinthians. And this one over here is Colossians, because Colossians has some problems with Greek philosophical tradition, too. So, wisdom is not the way that Paul thinks about the gospel. It's not the normal way. Paul doesn't say the gospel is wisdom normally. That's not the way. He doesn't describe it in terms of Greek wisdom. That's not his term. But the term comes up here because that's the way the Corinthians are describing it. That's the way they're talking about the gospel. Paul usually talks about it in a very negative sense. So Paul has picked up one of their terms here because that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the gospel. They're quarreling about it. But they're seeing it in some sense related to 
the Greek philosophical tradition about wisdom, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Third, also associated with these first two items are the repeated references to the Corinthians boasting and being puffed up. Remember, so then no more boasting about human leaders. So they're boasting. Hey, listen, Paulus is my man. Guy is cool, man. He's a good dresser. He's a good speaker. He is the guy, you know. So who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast? Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So they have these very inflated views of their position, their understanding of the gospel, based around the leader that they are following. Fourth, it seems altogether likely that the quarreling over the leaders is not just for Apollos or Cephas, but also to some degree against Paul. Paul always seems to be uh, defending his past ministry and his present relationship to them. 418, he says, some of you had become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. They're, they've become arrogant or puffed up towards Paul. You know, who is this Paul? I'm an Apollos guy. And, you know, is this Paul coming back? What's, you know, what's going on here? So some of the opposition is internally, they're arguing among themselves, but some of it is, is anti-Paul, a little anti-Paul, as we'll see here. I say then, <clears throat> how these four issues fit together it's not altogether clear, but let's try to piece it together. The problem most probably stem from certain Hellenistic influences. What does Hellenistic mean? Greek. Greek. So Hellene is the Greek word for Greek. Hellene is the Greek word for Greek. So when we're talking about Greek culture, the Greek culture that the Romans adopted, you can call that Greek culture or you can call it Hellenistic culture. Hellenistic. You can call the Greek of the New Testament, if you want to, Hellenistic Greek, if you want to. Some people call it Hellenistic Greek. So the problem was probably from certain Hellenistic Greek influences in the background of the Corinthians, especially the emphasis on rhetoric in the Greco-Roman world. The ability to, to speak extemporaneously, to make arguments. This emphasis was especially prevalent among certain itinerant teacher philosophers called sophists who were more concerned with polished oration than with significant content. So these sophists, Plato mentions them, they're, uh, they're itinerant philosophers, teachers. These sophists are relativists. They, uh, they don't believe in any moral absolutes. People like Socrates and Plato believed that there were absolutes. There was right and wrong. But these people don't believe in any right or wrong. They're relativists. They said things like man is the measure of all things. These philosophers uh, were more concerned with polished oration than with significant content. These philosopher orators were drawn from the ranks of the educated elite. 
They secured a large public following who paid to hear their lectures on various subjects. So they would come into a place like Corinth and lecture on various subjects. I mean, you couldn't go, you know, there was no movies, there was no TV, there was no NFL Monday night game. So people would come to these public lectures. They would pay to hear discourses about things, to educate themselves. Uh, they secured a large public following who paid. Oratory was much admired in the Greco-Roman world since it was a requirement in order to participate in public life. It was expected that these sophist orators would have a charismatic presence, including a striking physique, a well-resonated voice, an impressive wardrobe, and a commanding presence. So these were guys who would come into town, be able to speak on subjects that people wanted to hear. They'd have a great presence, a physique, well-resonated. Every time I, over the years when I think about this, I always think about Tony Robbins. You, you know Tony Robbins, but nobody knows Tony Robbins. I started, I was going to put a YouTube video of Tony up here, you know. But uh, sometime you have to look up Tony Robbins on the, on the, he's exactly, you know, this, exactly this kind of thing. But he, he speaks to people about all kinds of issues, health, money, finance, anything to make your life better, you know, whatever. He's the male Oprah, I guess, in a sense, isn't he? <laughs> But, you know, he's just, he's good looking, you know, just everything, all these features. And people naturally listen to him, want to be like him, and so forth. So, the point is, this is what the Corinthians are used to. This is the kind of leaders they're used to. And the coming and going of Paul, Apollos, maybe Peter, it says, some say they're following Cephas. We don't know if Peter actually was in Corinth or not, or they just... Most likely not, but it's possible. We don't know for sure. It's unlikely, I think. But what we see there is they're going to see a marked contrast in style. Here's a guy like Apollos who's described in Acts as well-educated, an Alexandrian, someone who could speak well and talk and so forth. And here's the Apostle Paul, who doesn't have a very good presence, who apparently is not a very polished speaker, contrary to what we think, who's who's a guy who lives in weakness, you know, he's not driving the latest uh, chariot or anything like that. You know, he's living in weakness and in poverty. And so when you contrast those, you know, they, they don't come off very well. Who do, you, who do you want to follow, you know? So therefore, you're going to get these kind of quarrelings and these kind of divisiveness. They're judging from a human perspective. And from that kind of perspective, Paul and his gospel don't come off very well. The message of a crucified Messiah preached in weakness, is not something that a Roman kind of world, a Greek kind of world, appreciates. Remember, crucifixion was a punishment reserved for the worst criminals in the Roman Empire. The very worst criminals were crucified. And here we're talking about a message of a crucified Messiah. That's hard to grasp. So the problem with Paul here is not so much the divisions. That's really a symptom. The greater issue, the greater threat to the gospel is the fact that they misunderstand the nature of the gospel. They they misunderstand the role of Christian leaders, what they're about. He'll He'll say they're supposed to be servants. They're not these people that we follow in that sense. I say here, in dealing with this first problem in the Corinthian church, three issues need to be set straight. 
The Corinthians misunderstanding the gospel. They're misunderstanding, they're confused about the nature of the gospel. Two, their erroneous perspective as to the nature of the church and their leaders. They have an invalid relationship of the church, of the teachers to the gospel. Three, Paul must correct both of these errors while at the same time reasserting his own authority over them. So Paul has a difficult task. These people are following these leaders, and that is a problem. But on the one hand, Paul wants to say, he'll say, we're servants. On the other hand, Paul is an apostle who has authority, who they have to obey. So there's a right kind of leadership, a servant leadership that Paul will discuss here that he wants to assert without destroying, you know, uh, everything here. So he's got a delicate task ahead of him here. Um, Let's look at uh, the first issue here. The problem, divisions over leaders in the name of wisdom and exhortation for unity. Uh, 110. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So this appeal is expressed negatively and positively. Positively, Paul urges that they agree with one another, that they be perfectly united in mind and thought. Negatively, there should be no divisions among them. So remember I said this word divisions doesn't refer to distinctly formed groups or parties, but divisions uh, of opinions. It's used, for instance, in the Gospels. Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. It doesn't mean that they became different sects. They just had a division of opinion. They were divided in their opinions. And uh, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a sinner perform signs? They were divided. Divided in their opinions. So we're not saying... They broke off into separate churches here or anything like that. Um, They had developed into into quarrels and that kind of thing. Then we see the problem stated. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So Paul has learned about their divisions from communications he had from Chloe's household. Now remember, they sent him a letter. It's doubtful that in the letter that they said, hey Paul, we got some divisions, we got some quarrels, you know. Unlikely. Paul heard about this from, says, Chloe's household. We don't know exactly who Chloe's household is. We don't know whether they were from Corinth or Ephesus. You might say, well, they're from Corinth, and they left Corinth and came to Ephesus to tell Paul. That's possible. Some think that they were probably Ephesians who had visited Corinth and come back. And that's why Paul trusts their testimony more because there's not some Corinthians just here. He's not just hearing one side of the story. These are people he maybe knows who have gone to Ephesus, gone to Corinth and, and told him that. Anyway, these people from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among the Corinthians. Number three, a detailed explanation of the problem. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. 
Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So the church is experiencing quarrels, which are being generated in the names of their various leaders, although it's unlikely that the leaders themselves are party to it, as we said. It's obviously true of Paul and Christ. The evidence of 1612 we've looked at demands that Paul did not think that Apollos was guilty in any way. Of Peter in his presence, there's nothing certain that can be known. We don't know that he visited he visited Corinth. There's no evidence of that. So we should conclude that the church has fallen into a love with argumentation in which some of the Corinthians are boasting in themselves by supposing that their views about the gospel, incorrect views, actually comes from one of their leaders. They think of the leaders they rally around as teachers of wisdom in the Greek philosophical tradition. It's difficult to know what to make of these groups here. It seems very strange. <clears throat> some say, I follow Paul. You know, who are these people? You think everybody would say, I follow Paul. But obviously some say, I follow Paul. And Paul's not happy about that, as you'll see. He's not happy that some saying, I'm following Paul. He's going he's gonna to knock that down. So why is he opposed to that? Well, because they're, they're saying, I follow Paul in opposition to these other people. Um, they may be thinking themselves as, hey, we're the really spiritual people here because we're following Paul, possible. But then, you know, the Apollos group, the Christ group is the impossible one to figure out. Who in the world are these people? Doesn't everybody follow Christ, you know, that kind of thing? And why would Paul object to that? He certainly wouldn't. But apparently these people are saying, okay, but we're the real people here. You know, we're the, we, we follow Christ, you know. we're the So maybe this is a super, super, super arrogant sense of, you know, we're following, you know. Anyway, Paul is unhappy about this. He says then in... Um, Um, number four here Paul's objection to the situation is Christ divided was Paul crucified for you were you baptized in the name of Christ we see here that Paul is quite upset at what he's learned from Chloe's household Paul's arguments are designed to help his readers see the total absurdity of their own position the question that Paul asked represents represents logical extensions of their slogans Yet in each case, the question also demands a strongly negative response on the part of the Corinthians. The verb divided has the idea of Christ being apportioned out as one among many on an equal level with other leaders. And by parsing out Christ I'm one among others and by saying I am of Paul, they must allow them that Paul too could have been crucified for them, that they had been baptized into Paul's name. Of course, this is absurd. It's intended to make nonsense of their slogans. To be baptized in the name of someone means that the one baptized has turned over their allegiance and thus has given themselves to the one named in the right. But since they were not baptized in Paul's name, by the very fact they cannot say, I am of Paul. So Paul is saying, Christ can't be apportioned out. You can't divide... Christ up to, to various groups like this so that he's with one group and not with another. He, Paul can't be divided up. Paul can't. Paul wasn't crucified for you. He's not like Christ in that sense. He's not on that level. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. That's total, total nonsense, isn't it? 
Verse 14. I thank God that it did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. No one can say, so no one can say that they were baptized in my name. So after mentioning the absurd, absurd idea in verse 13 that anyone could be baptized in his name, Paul goes on to say how grateful he is that he baptized so few. A case of providential good fortune. This circumstance prevents those who are following him from making the absurd statement in verse 15, 13 that they were baptized in the name of Paul. So some were saying, you know, I guess, you know, they're following Paul. Paul baptized me. There, there, sometimes there's an occasional thing where a Christian thinks there's something special about being baptized by a certain person. But Paul says, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize uh, anyone except Christmas and Gaius so that no one can say they were baptized in my name. Now he says that he baptized Crispus, who's probably the Jewish synagogue leader here, um, Acts 18, uh, when Paul establishes the church. It says, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in Paul, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So Paul says, I baptized Crispus, the synagogue leader. Uh, Gaius here, Gaius, Romans 16.23 here, is Paul's host. Now, Paul, remember, is in Ephesus. He's writing back to Corinth. Later, he's going to write an epistle to the Romans. And when he's writing that epistle to the Romans, he's at Corinth. So Paul's in Ephesus. He's writing the Corinthian letters. He will eventually go back to Corinth, and there he'll write the Roman letter. And so he says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you greetings. So Paul is in Corinth, and he's writing to Rome, and he mentions that. So these, these are probably people well-known people in the church, and Paul had baptized them. Uh, Verse 16. Yes, I also baptized the households of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Now this is, Paul sort of interrupts his argument here with a parenthetical statement. That's why the NIV has it in parentheses here. He says says in verse 14, uh, I didn't baptize anyone except Crispus and Gaius. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I forgot that I did baptize the household of Stephanus, and I don't remember if I baptized uh, anyone else beyond that. So Paul remembers that, or maybe Stephanus, who is that Paul is dictating the letter to, reminds him that uh, that is the case. Remember, he says in 1 Corinthians 16, you know that the household of Stephanus were the one first converts in Achaia. And they had voted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. So here's some, these are people from Corinth that Paul baptized here. Um, Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he says, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else, for Paul explains, Christ didn't send me to baptize. Paul's calling was as an apostle whose mission was to evangelize and plant churches. Other Christians could baptize. Now, Paul's not minimizing Christian baptism. It's commanded by our Lord, but others could baptize. Paul didn't have to be the one to baptize. Baptism doesn't require an apostle for administration. That's what Paul is saying here. And I'm happy that when Paul went to Corinth, initially people were saved. He baptized some people. But once the church is established then leaders in the church, others baptized other converts in the church, and Paul didn't 
continuing with his baptism. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus didn't baptize most of his converts, his disciples did. After making it clear what he did not come to do, to baptize, Paul moves on to what he did come to do, to preach the gospel. He further describes this task with a remarkable contrast. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ should be rendered ineffective. Now, the very, the very way this is said, plus the fact that Paul will go on to elaborate on this in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 16, makes it pretty clear that wisdom and eloquence are something that the Corinthians admired. This is what they admired, wisdom and eloquence. So Paul's intent with these words seems to be pretty clear. He wants to set forth his own ministry in contrast to these two terms. Wisdom speaks more to content, and eloquence speaks more to form. So the human wisdom with which these people are enamored, this Greek philosophical tradition, it was not concerned about content. It was concerned about really more about approval from the audience. And Paul says, I'm not concerned about that kind of thing. I'm concerned about the true content of the gospel, the gospel of a crucified Messiah, which is going to turn a lot of people off. And I'm not concerned about eloquence. I'm not concerned about convincing people just by my argumentation alone. I want the gospel to convince people. I want the power of the gospel to change people's lives. To follow wisdom and eloquence alone, Paul says, is to render the cross of Christ ineffective or to empty of its power. Barrett in his commentary says, Paul represents himself as a preacher, not as an orator. Preaching is the proclamation of the cross. It is the cross that is the source of its power. The convincing power of the cross could not be fully manifest if preaching shared too evidently in the devices of human rhetoric If men are persuaded by eloquence, they are not persuaded by Christ crucified. Preaching the cross, Paul will tell us next, invites derision. It doesn't invite applause that they're looking for. All right, let's stop here and we'll pick it up next week. Thank you very much.